We have made it to another Sunday. We're still alive and breathing. It's a good thing. Well, it's good to see everybody, as always. Always enjoy seeing all your faces on Sunday morning. And as it looks like we're starting to see some more faces, I'd like to welcome everybody uh, to 116 Bible Church this morning. I am Jeff Rose. I am the senior pastor of 116 Bible Church. And today we're going to continue our quest through 1 Samuel. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. First Samuel chapter 19. Uh, the goal is um, trying to make it uh, through the 10th verse. We only made it through the first verse uh, last time I was up here. So today our goal is to um, move a little bit further. So let us read. First Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. We're going to stop there. Let us pray. Father, we just... We come before you, Lord. We come to you through the throne of grace, through the precious and holy, righteous, perfect blood of our Redeemer and King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is because of you and the power of the Spirit of God that we are even able to even be here today, breathing and enjoying your presence. Lord, I'd ask today that you remove any obstacle, any hindrance out of the way from those today that would be hearing the word of God preached, Lord. There would be no distractions, Lord, that you would conquer their minds and conquer the hearts of your people, Lord. And I'm asking you now, Lord, that you would conquer my mind and conquer my heart and that you would rule and reign from the very throne of my heart this morning, Lord, that you would grant me a mouth to speak and a mind to think godly thoughts after you, Lord. Be honored today and glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we are in uh, verse 1. Uh, it says that Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. From here we see at the very Outcome, Saul has laid his eyes on David. The moment the applause was no longer directed at himself, but now directed at the upcoming king of Israel. A man which the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. We looked at this a few weeks back and addressed the issues uh, that we read. And the first one was that Saul, we come to the conclusion, was un unregenerate. And his kingdom was purely manufactured from the flesh. Second, we discussed how even a true believer can find themselves building their own kingdoms from the flesh as well. 
And that if we are not careful, our Christian walk can be nothing more than a performance-driven personality cult, which is opposed to the Christ-driven humility that seeks to exalt Christ opposed to ourselves. And thirdly, we see David. A man called by God, who waits upon God, who knows God, and seeks to please God instead of self. Let me just remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, selfish ambition has no place in the kingdom of God. Let's take it a bit further. Selfish ambition has no place in the church. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 reads, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Another translation reads it this way. Do nothing out of selfishness or out of vain glory. Rather, it says, humbly regard others as more important than you. It's a hard place to be, isn't it? That's something we have to continually, daily, some of us hourly, moment per moment, minute per minute, got to kill the old man. Paul says that he had crucified himself daily, but the reality is for many of us, it could be moment to moment. Then the, the word vainglory is a translation of the Greek word kenodoxia, which means actually an empty, an empty glory. It's really nothing in it. It's pride-driven, nearly akin to vanity in the modern sense. In Galatians chapter 5, 26, it reads, Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Not only is vainglory is seen as something completely opposed to God himself, but also the desire to be vain, a desire for vanity. See, I don't think there'd be so much vain glory if the desire was crucified in a preventable sense before we ever reached to the point where it became all about us. And it can happen to each and every one of us. We need to watch and make sure our lives are exhibiting a humility and not vain glory. Or another way of translating this verse could be the pride of life. Or even compare that with James 4.16. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Or it says, in another translation, you glory in your vauntings. What does a vaunting mean? Well, vaunting means to brag. It means to boast. In a modern sense, it means to be a show-off. Man, we don't need any more show-offs, do we, in the church in America? We've got enough of that in the great evangelical disaster in this country. It's the showing off that needs to die, right? Galatians chapter 5, and check this out. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21 is showing, Paul is showing the difference from what flows out of a life that's submissive and dead to self and alive to Christ to the opposite end, he shows what happens to those who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He says this, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Of course, we all know that one, right? 
fornication, that all makes sense. Uncleanness, we all get that one. Lewdness, we all definitely understand that one. Idolatry, sorcery, we get that. Contentions, jealousies. And now here's where it gets a little tough on us. Fits of rage. Men given over to anger. Sinful anger, by the way, not righteous indignation. What about this? And it shows here other ones that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The next word it says, selfish ambition. We don't like to read that one. We love all the capital, you know, capital letter sins, right? But we never read and stop for a moment that selfish ambition is listed here in the list, which is Paul's calling out unbelievers. Contentious, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelry, and of the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does a believer wrestle with these things? Absolutely. Until the old man is fully done away with at our glorification, we're granted new bodies, we're going to struggle with these things. And each and every one of us has a personal enemy, don't we? Each and every one of us has a personal fight. The world likes to say we have our demons, right? But this is really the flesh. This is really dealing with the sinful nature. And this is where we see in 1 Samuel uh, 19.1, Saul's selfish ambition... His selfish ambition, it was all about him. It was all about his performance. It was all about him being seen a certain way in front of the people of God. He loved the authority. He loved the applause. He loved when people were looking at him. He loved to have the upper seats, right? But he's a complete and absolute disaster behind the scenes because his fits of rage turned into murder. Fits of rage, if they're not conquered at the cross, if they're not conquered by Christ, ultimately the idea is to destroy. You say, yeah, we're not killing anybody. Well, in other countries, they're killing each other off. But here in this country, we kill each other off in other ways, right? Through gossip, through slander, through selfish ambition, which morphs a lot of the times into fits of anger. We've seen it here in this small congregation. People don't get their way. They come in. They have an idea and an agenda. They're opportunist. They're not coming here to sit humbly in the congregation and to learn from Christ, to hear the word of God being preached. They're here because they're opportunist, right? And you don't give them their way. They come in here. They have an agenda. You say, no, your agenda stops at the door. They flare up, split the church. Cause dissension, contention, all these things that we see here, right? We don't want to become like that. And this is the sermon is really dialed around this area this morning. I like what Guzik writes in his commentary. He writes this. Check this out. Saul was in such a stage. You know this? When you get in such a stage, you want something so bad, you don't care anymore. Who knows? At first, you stay in hiding. You tiptoe around it. You don't want everybody to know quite yet. When it gets to the point you're not getting your way and you're seeing your life slipping through your fingers, now it's time to attack. You don't care who knows because why? Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. We see a manifestation of evil. Guzik writes, Saul put Jonathan in a difficult place. Jonathan loved David and God made a wonderful bond of friendship between them, sealed by a covenant. 
Jonathan knew David was destined to be the next king of Israel, even though Jonathan was officially the crown prince. At the same time, his father and king told him to kill David. Saul put his servants in a difficult place. They all loved David, yet they were commanded now to kill David. Do you see where this sin is going? The sin is just amplifying. It's getting worse until, obviously, Saul is stopped by taking his own life. Saul put David in a difficult place. And this would be the beginning of a long and vain attempt to destroy David. But it was one of God's many refining ways to prepare his servant to take the throne. That one moment we read in Psalm 142, uh, looking at David's life in the future. He says this, David was being hunted down at this point. He was being pursued by Saul. He was there in the cave of Adullam, and he cried out. He says, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge had literally completely failed me. No man, no man, no man cares for my soul. That's where the place where he reached. He couldn't run to Jonathan. He couldn't run anywhere. But if you read the verses, we won't get into this too much, but he runs to the tabernacle of God. And there he's refreshed by seeing the priest brings out the sword of Goliath. Said, listen, just before you think everyone's failed you, don't you remember what happened in the Valley of Elam? Let this sword remind you. And David was refreshed because he just needed that one person to step in at that time and say, hey, and that's the God's providence. You ever been that place in your life where you just had it? You say, I'm done. I quit. I have. It's over for me. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And then that refreshing word comes from the faithful soul. Usually it's my wife telling me, no, you're not quitting. You stay in the fight. Look, what, look, look, she says. Let's just take a visit in the past. Look how he's helped us all these years. You think he's not going to help us now? And greatly refreshed. We all need that person in our church and in our lives. Spurgeon says it this way. It's not that they didn't know him. That's not the problem that David's having. He said, but they wouldn't know him. A big difference from, uh, you know, couldn't know me to, they chose that they wouldn't know you. It's a big difference being rejected, right, by others opposed to, hey, they can't know me. Well, though they, know, chose, they, they don't want to know you at this portion of your life. But what does all this do? When all of our resources have failed, when all refuges have failed, and we find ourselves crying out, no man careth for my soul, we have to understand that God removes all the confidences and comforts of our lives, all those rescue systems and coping mechanisms that we cling to. Why? To get us to cling to him. He removes those areas that we so grab grab for, our default system. You know, we all have a default system, right? When things get bad, what do you run to? My phone, glass of wine, things you shouldn't be looking at on the internet, money, shopping, food. 
We run to these things because it's our natural defense to help us. We run to these things for comfort and safety and as some sort of sedative. So we have to deal with our own selves. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, listen, you, your default system is not your phone. It's not social media. It's Jesus Christ. And as believers, as we begin to walk with Christ and begin to learn of Him and love Him and we're around others, you'll find that your default system now, when things go haywire, things become a mess, your default system is Christ and His Word. It's a great place to be. And obviously, we're not all there. I'm not all there. These things are a constant struggle in the life of a Christian. Back to our text. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But, the Bible says, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Jonathan warded off the first outbreak of deadly enmity on the part of Saul towards David. And this is why. Why would he do something like that? First of all, we have to remember that Saul wasn't just the king. This was his dad we're dealing with. So we don't ever stop for a moment and consider what is happening in the life of Jonathan. He really gets thrown under the bus, right? Look what even happens at his end, right? And he would have known David was, was on his way to the throne. Jonathan would have been the heir because he's the father's son. You don't see him getting all upset with a bunch of selfish ambition, yelling at David, even plotting David's death so he can be next in line. No, because he totally loved David, covenantally. His love for David was beyond the love he'd even have for a woman. I mean, this just gives you an idea and a picture of the kind of filial love that we should have for one another. We should be Jonathan. To David in this respect. He delighted in David. He loved David. Therefore, he even put his own life at risk. Could you imagine selling your dad out, the king of Israel? What that would have meant for him? I mean, his dad was willing to kill him for a drop of honey. Why not treason against an ungodly, wicked, vile, Man full of selfish ambition. Jonathan jumped in, rescued David. He told David this. I'm going to say something here. When you love, when your love for somebody is beyond trying to get attention or trying to somehow um, be able to get to a certain place in life, when, when all of your dreams You're willing to shatter all those and die to all of those things to do what's right. It's a hard place to be. He told David. What a result. His love for David caused him to speak out. His love for David, who is a type of Christ as well, caused him to speak out. How much more with the children of God and the saints of the Lord? Our love, our love for Christ. How can we but keep silent? Knowing him, being known by him, causes first to love Christ over our sin. When we love God more than we love our sin, we'll find ourselves moving in a direction 
that pleases God and our life will be more effective in every realm of life. We must remember that God's servants are frequently exposed to uh, alarming dangers and placed in difficult places. Let me repeat that real quick. We must remember that God's servants are frequently exposed to alarming dangers and placed in difficult places. They don't preach that much in America anymore. You have to remember that God places you in those places purposely. But if we're in Christ, we're in Christ, we're communing with God, we're in his word, we will never be taken by surprise. It's an important thing to realize. It brings great comfort to realize this, is that when you are in Christ, you're abiding in him, you won't be thrown off course when bad things happen. We may ask, well, why does God allow, allow this? Because we see that this danger came at an unexpected time. You ever notice that? The crisis always comes when you just don't expect it? Out of nowhere? I mean, literally, a shattering experience just shows up out of nowhere? I don't know how many times that has happened to me. Everything's going smooth, everything's right on track, and then out of nowhere, you get this unexpected particular danger comes at a time, and we're usually never prepared. But when we are prepared, how do we handle that situation opposed to we're not prepared? We handle the situation exactly. We understand it from God's view and his sovereignty. It was said that the, co the covenanters during the most severe time in Scottish history when they were fighting for the gospel, fighting for this uh, with their lives, with their blood, it was said that their view of the sovereignty of God was the only way that they could make it through such hellish times of being slaughtered and murdered for their faith. If they didn't have a correct understanding of the word of God, and didn't understand that God has ordained everything that comes to pass, they would have went insane. Could you imagine having a Pelagian faith or an Arminian faith during those tough hours? I'm not saying that Arminians can't be our brothers and sisters. What I'm saying is, if you think you can fall away the moment you sin, could you imagine living a life like that? But knowing full well that God has ordained everything that comes to pass. He ordains those shocking moments in our lives, the moments when we're not prepared. Why does he do this? For his glory and for our good. Nothing in life transforms the believer like adversity. And nothing transforms us more than those shocking inconveniences. Isn't that the truth? We're not to react like the world, but we're to give heed to what Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not think it's a, it is strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to what? Try you as though something strange is happening to you. It's interesting how Peter knew that right away, right? He knew that this would be an issue. And he's saying, Beloved, don't think it's strange when this fiery trial comes upon you. Those trials you can't even stand, barely even speak. We must understand how God has orchestrated these things out. Yes, they hurt. Yes, they're dismantling. Yes, they're crushing. Absolutely. Never want to minimize someone's pain during these tragedies. 
But as you're walking through these, these painful moments and these deep, dark valleys, we must understand that God truly is in control over our lives. Every jot and every, every tittle. There's no, there's not one maverick molecule that God is not in control of. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, God may plunge a man into the pit to see his true sinfulness in many different ways. One way is that he may bring the memory of old sins to remembrance. He may allow a man to be greatly tempted and thus to know his own weaknesses. He may reveal to the man how imperfect all his works are. He may make the man to understand the spiritual character of the law of God. And he may display his great holiness to the man, as we've seen in Isaiah 6, that when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, it impacted him so much. He didn't become boastful and proud. He was stripped of everything that he clung to, to the point where he couldn't even speak. He says, I am a man that has been come, become undone. Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to what? Stand before the son of God. Second Peter 4, 2 says, preach the word, be instant, be ready, be prepared, be earnest, be persistent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. See, Jesus Christ himself was a man of all seasons. One who was never caught off guard. So glad we don't have a seasonal savior. There's no off-season with Christ. Therefore, there should never be an off-season to his church. Jonathan's warning to David demanded immediate attention, which led to a decisive action. We must ask ourselves, can we function in this realm? Can we be like the picture in which God has given to us today as we look at the word? When these things happen, it was sudden. It was immediate and demanded immediate attention. And this is the way we need to be, especially in leadership. When things start to go haywire, things seem chaotic and crazy. Even in your life, you must be that person that when those things happen, you are ready for immediate action. which always leads to decisive action. First Samuel 16, 18 says, already tells us that David was a man who was able to lead. He was able to make decisions on the spot. David was a man who was a skillful musician, a valiant, mighty man, a warrior, skillful in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. 
You see the character of David as he's being brought up the rungs of the ladder on his way to kingship. You see this, that how he was established, how he was built, before they even ever had him come and play the harp for Saul. They already knew his reputation was he was a man of God. He was humble. He was skillful. He was prudent in speech. He knew how to speak. Therefore, God was preparing his man environmentally as well as inwardly for the kingdom. This way, when something came upon him, he was ready. He knew how to handle these difficult times. Let me tell you this. Anyone that can kill a lion and a bear by grabbing his beard <laughs> certainly is ready for anything to come upon him suddenly, right? We must remember as well that character and integrity must come first in our lives. Listen, there's nothing more important in the body of Christ that you have integrity and you have character. Character. If you don't have that, don't circumnavigate around that and go hide in some ministry. I've done it before. See, ministry with a lot of action and exposure is a great place for penance. It's a great place to hide. It's a great place to cover up. And it's a great way to affirm yourself of your spirituality. It's like your outward confirmation that you're still right with God when in all reality you're not. Because your ministry has become your Christ. Our ministry is Christ. As much as we hate abortion, we're not abortion-centered church. As much as we love open-air preaching, this is not an open-air preaching-centered church. As much as we disagree and, and call homosexuality a sin and an abomination, we're not a homosexuality evangelistic church. We're a Christ-centered church. We're a Christ-centered church. And when you're Christ-centered, all these other things are byproducts of the prime products. We deal with these things, but they're not the main issue. It isn't your main issue. We must be careful and heed Saul's life in our own life. Remember, Saul performed well. He looked good. He had all of these things that would appear to others like the Pharisees, right? It would appear to others that they're holy. Look at this guy praying out there. Look at the way he gives. Look at all the good works he does, right? But behind the scenes, they're a brood of vipers. I mean, I don't hear Jesus calling the, the, the common people that. It's always the spiritual prideful people, the ambitious people, selfishly ambitious. It's okay to be ambitious. We must be awful careful. I must be careful. That I'm not reading into this like I'm someone special because I'm not, just because I'm, I'm up here. Ask my wife if you want the truth of my life. Don't ask me. Ask her. Few of you brothers know me very well, but don't go to the church and ask them. Ask the person that I live with. Ask my children. You ain't always going to get the greatest report all the time. That's life. That's life. We all battle. I'm a man like you. I'm a Christian like you. I'm your brother, okay, in Christ. I struggle too. We have to understand this reality, though, that if we're, we're, if we're just a bunch of pretending people and, and our whole desire is just to lift ourselves up like Saul, you will come crashing down. Be sure your sin will find you out.
we must really deal with the area of our own hearts when it comes to our integrity and character. We all do. We see this danger proceeded from what? A powerful enemy. We talked that not only, not only was this the king, but this was Jonathan's father. This was Jonathan's dad. So we could almost imagine what was going through his mind. And dealing with these two worlds really gives us a great picture. You know, you've got this whole contraption over here, right, that would give him status, would give him the title that he wanted to get the respect of all the people. But he didn't. He chose the other. He chose the other for his love for Christ, his love for the Lord, and his love for his brother. He took the low road. He took the low road. It's hard taking the low road, isn't it? It's hard to get in the back of the line, right? It's difficult. It's difficult. And this is why we need the power of the Spirit of God in our lives to walk these ways. Not only bringing destruction on the church and upon your own life that, that when your faith is shipwrecked because you won't repent, we have to look at this reality of what he was dealing with at this particular time. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, listen to this now. Do not think that I have came to bring peace on earth. I did, I, I did not come to bring peace, he says, but a sword. Hear me out. Verse 35 says, for I have come to set a man against his father. I have come, I have come to set a man against his father. Think about that. Then he goes further, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. See, waywardness in your family isn't always, you got to be a recipe parent, right? I didn't get everything right. My child went wayward. He hates God. He's into everything that we did not raise him to be like. Waywardness doesn't always mean that you have failed as a parent. We have to understand that Christ is doing something here. The waywardness could be very well for your sanctification. And also for the other person, your son or dad, it could be for the betterment as well or his removal. You just never know what God is doing. This is why I hear parents sometimes, they have a wayward wayward family member, a wayward um, child, and they, they condemn themselves and condemn themselves. You know, you got to understand that not every time a child goes wayward, it isn't always the parent's fault. Jesus said right here, I had come to set you apart from those family members. We have to understand this could be one reality. Not always. It could be negligent on the parent. Absolutely. There could be negligence there in the leadership of the home. Absolutely. But let's not discount the other reality as well. And this danger here presented a deeply unsettling scenario for David and for Jonathan. The whole situation in its many facets was there to kill and to steal and to destroy. And while we know that Saul was seeking to devour David, and this is why, uh, and this is why Jonathan tells David. He says to David, he spoke up, which means that Jonathan's Jonathan's life would have been at stake. But Jonathan tells him, basically, my father seeks to kill you. It's a huge thing. Someone's going to kill you, and it's the king. It's going to be my dad. He is after you like a bloodhound. Do you imagine receiving that news? Be horrifying. 
be horrifying. Someone that took him in and treated him like a son, even called him his son. Now he's throwing spears at him, throwing spears at Jonathan. He's got a spear addiction, doesn't he? <laughs> see a lot of that, but in reality, we see also David is warned. Jonathan was an extraordinary man. If you ever really studied his life, search all you can, you will not find one incident where he lacked faith or made a wrong decision or fell in to grievous sin. Even though he was King Saul's son, he was certainly cut from a different cloth. He was a man of commitment and integrity, and this showed in his loyalty to David. The man his father, Saul, tried to desperately to kill. In his life, Jonathan gives us a picture of true friendship, and in doing so, shows us a glimpse of the loyalty and dedication of the one who calls us his friend, Jesus Christ. John 15, 13 says, Greater love is no man than this, that he layeth down his life for his friends. You think about that, and anytime I hear friendship and it comes to me and the Lord, it takes me a minute to snap out of my sin of unbelief that this perfect God who became flesh, 100% God and 100% man would call me his friend. So they call brother, 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 brother. Hear it all the time, right? But when you call someone your friend, it's powerful. And he knew that choice of words. We all call each other brothers and so it's fantastic. But think about when someone says, hey, hey, by the way, you know, you're a good friend. So you rise up inside. You're just like, man, I needed to hear that. I need a good friend. And I know we talked about this earlier. I'm not going to drive it too much. But we do need friends who are dedicated and loyal. But we have one in case you don't. And his name is Jesus Christ. And I would say this, even if you do, he is the friend of friends. No one even compares to the loveliness of our best friend, Jesus Christ. He says, Saul, my father, he seeks to kill you. Therefore, he says, be on your guard in the morning. Basically, all night into the morning. First Peter 5 8 says, therefore, be on your guard, says to the saints. We need to be on guard as well. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Are you guys on guard? Would you say you're on guard? Would you say this would apply to you this morning, not a month ago, not two years ago? Are you on guard now? Do you believe the devil is real? Do you believe that Satan is real? That is some evil force? He's real and he wants to kill you. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill you off. He wants to kill babies. He wants to kill your kids. He doesn't play fair. We're not sitting up here going to pander the devil. He's after your life. If he can't kill you, he will kill everything in your life. We have to be on guard. 
We have to read Ephesians. We have to be clothed in the full armor of God. Brothers and sisters, I know what it's like not to be clothed. I know what it's like in an unguarded state. I know what it's like to be bombarded by wicked spirits and demonic forces. I know what that feels like, and I don't like it. But there's a way to combat that, you see. That's through the blood of Christ and putting on, being clothed in Christ, being clothed in his power. As Ephesians says, stand therefore and put on the full armor of God. And if you're not doing that, you will not stand when the enemy attacks you. He will crush you like an empty pop can, soda can. That's my name from Michigan. Give me a break. He will crush you. He will crush you. And you will find, you'll find yourself in a repeatable pattern of continual cleanup and restoration and never on the side of victory. It's a scary place to be, but we have to understand. And if I could just, if one thing you could remember out of anything that I've said today, it would be this, stand therefore and put on the full armor of God. Stand in Christ. Stand in, stand in him. Be on your guard, okay? He's not going to come in a way that you think he's going to come. He always comes at your greatest vulnerable, vulnerability, vulnerable state. He always will come at you in your weakest point. He always attacks you where you're weak, not where you're strong. It's always a place that you struggle with. And this is what Jonathan had told David. He said, stay, he said in a secret place and hide yourself. Well, you don't want him to run out and attack Saul and take him out and take the throne. No, he tells him to go into the secret place and to hide yourself. You know, just recently, I have different ways of praying, sometimes walking, sometimes, you know, we, have, we all have our different modes, right? Especially when you're in a hurry, right? Unfortunately. But lately, um, I struggle with getting up in the morning. I never used to. But you guys remember, you guys know that I had, to, had a really severe depressive episode in 2019. Kind of stifled the chemistry of my body in ways where I struggle in the mornings really bad. It's very difficult. I mean, eventually, I wake up and I do fine, right? But even in that state of misery, I went into my closet and I got on my knees in the dark closet. And I saw all these things, all these attacks and all my schedule getting fuller. And I just couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have the capacity for all of it. It was literally going on so much. I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to have the capacity for all of this? And then it reminded me, go to the Lord, go to the Lord and hide, find a secret place, go there and hide and cry out to him. And he will, the Bible says, he will hear you and he will answer your prayer. Many of us, really, you can't figure it all out. Okay? You can't do it all. You don't have the capacity, but you can do this. You can go and hide in the Lord. Build yourself a secret place. No kids, no husband, right? Alone with God. No phone, just the Lord. He said, stay there and hide yourself. In Psalm 91, verse 1, it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. 
our hiding place is Christ. Psalms 27.5 says, For in the same time of trouble, he shall what? Hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle so shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Finishing up here, just a few application points that you can kind of bring back to your memory. Ask, your, ask yourself this question this morning. Have you taken an honest evaluation of yourself? Have you taken an honest evaluation of yourself? Not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your friends, not Alistair Begg. <laughs> an honest evaluation of yourself, of yourself. Are you a show-off? Are you a show-off? Ask yourself that. Do you say, I do it for the glory of God, but you just do it for yourself? It's an easy thing to do, right? I do this all for the glory of God, but then we see these things. It's like, uh, it's not about the glory of God. It's about your glory. But then I see it in myself. I see many things that I do. I'm like, you can say whatever you want. You may be able to fool people, but God ain't fooled. You're doing this for your own glory. You better repent before he removes your lampstand. I'm not above being cast out of this place. Trust me. I'm right there with you. Let us not be people that vaunt ourselves, please. The boasting and the pride and all the personality cults. We don't want to, we don't want to be driven by that stuff. Don't let your ministry drive you either. I knew this one guy, I'll make it quick, real quick. I had a friend that I used to go out and open air preach with. He said, you know, my dad, all of the years growing up, had a soup kitchen. He would go out to the homeless and they would line up by the hundreds and he would give them food and then he would preach. But he said, when he got home. He was an absolute, utter monster. Never prayed with me once, yelled at my mother, behaved like an unconverted person in the home. We had a big soup kitchen and he was everybody's deliverer out there on the streets where no one knew him, just giving them sandwiches and soup. They all thought, this is the best guy in the world. And then he goes home and he tramples upon his family, but he hides in ministry. This can't be said of us. We got to die to ourselves, even die to our ministries, that Christ can be glorified and grant you the maturity, right? And the integrity and the character, which takes sometimes years of walking with the Lord before you're prepared just to be let go, to do your thing. You do more damage to yourself and others if you're not careful. Uh, two, um, speak up. Jonathan spoke up. Speak up. Speak up to your brothers. Speak up to your sisters. Be honest with each other. Be lovingly honest. Don't be a jerk. Okay? Don't be self-righteous. And don't come at a place that you couldn't fall yourself. Speak up. But speak Christ to them. Speak Christ to them and to the world around. And the last thing, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ, for he is our secret place. And there, brothers and sisters, precious saints of the Lord, learn, learn to develop a secret place and hide in Christ. Let's pray.